Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. I mean, one of the benefits of of traveling cross-culturally culturally is that you uh, you are forced to re- reflect on the way that that your culture has shaped you, right? Because you step into a, a completely different culture, and and you're pressed with issues as to well, wh- why do they do it like that? Well, then, well, why do we do it like we do it? And and you work, you have to work through those things. Because all of us are affected by our culture, and, and in deeper ways than we realize. I mean, some, in some ways, uh, perhaps a, a little simplistic, but culture is the norms by which we live, right? It's what we view to be normal. It's become shaped that way. And so those norms or values govern the way we operate. Another way of, of, of looking at it is that it actually helps shape the way we interpret life around us. We see things a certain way because we've, we've grown up with those interpretations of things, right? And, and that doesn't, uh, do not hear me saying that every interpretation is valid. That's not true at all. It, it, practically speaking, we should be concluding that since all of our cultures have been formed, at least in part, in rebellion against God. Every culture needs to be under the authority of God's word and examined, right? We don't just prejudice our culture over other cultures because there are ways in which our sinful rebellion against God has been wrapped into our culture as well. But it does force us at times to step back and say, how much of our thinking is shaped by the culture around us as to why we do what we do, why we think what we think? And in fact, uh, in an interesting way, that's exactly what's happening here in the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians, because the Corinthians were shaped by their culture too. They were in a Greek philosophical culture, and so they were trying to take and 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 uh, integrate that with what they heard of the gospel. And in, in meshing those two together, the cross was actually being minimized because it was offensive to the culture around them. They were actually trying to reshape Christianity to make it more palatable to a pagan culture. And, and that is... Uh, always been the temptation because as much as we might think we don't care what the culture around us thinks we actually do we we do not want to be viewed entirely as cultural outsiders right just think about how much of how much how many of the choices you make fit quite comfortably inside the stream of culture where it doesn't, it doesn't validate the scriptures, right? You've made a million choices about what you wear, about what you drive, about what your house looks like, what, how your house is decorated, what you eat. Those are all living within the culture in ways that don't necessarily conflict with our Christian commitment. But then there are parts of our culture that do. And working that out in a consistent, 
careful way is what it means to be holy, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Because if we just assume every choice we make is obviously the godly choice, then then we're probably blind spiritually because none of us are that sanctified. None of us are that holy. And so we have to constantly be putting it to the test and examining it and wrestling through it. And so Paul has been confronting them. He's been very strong about the fact that you cannot take the gospel of the cross and water it down with human philosophy because you essentially not only undercut the message of the cross itself, but you are opening up the door to boast in something other than the Lord. You're now opening the door to boast in your strategic insight that makes the gospel more effective in your ability to communicate this offensive message in a way that is winsome and wins the heart and respect of lost people. So that now the boasting starts to be about the messengers instead of the message and, and the one who is crucified. So Paul, Paul is warning them pretty strongly. He has been trying to help them see that in fact, the message of the cross is wisdom. It's God's wisdom that has been revealed by God through the Spirit given to the apostles and incorporated into his word. That it's not, in fact, it's not the world's wisdom against anti-wisdom. It's actually the world's wisdom versus God's wisdom. And he made a statement in chapter 2 and verse 6 that he's going to He's going to actually come and address the last part of it. Look at chapter two, verse six, the very first statement. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. So really, if you can think about it this way, the end of verse six all the way through verse 13 is unpacking that phrase, we do speak wisdom. Right? It's not a wisdom that this world has recognized. It's not a wisdom that the rulers of this world have recognized. It's a wisdom that is God's wisdom that has been revealed to us by the Spirit. And the Spirit has taken God's wisdom and put it into words for us. And the apostles received it and have been teaching it. Everything from the second part of verse 6 to verse 13 has been addressing that issue about them speaking God's wisdom. But in verse 14, he starts to address the second part of that sentence, among the mature. So he speaks wisdom among the mature. So who are the mature? Who fits that category that Paul is speaking of there? And that's what we start to see beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2. So I'll need to read, I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 14, down into chapter 3, because it helps us understand the passage. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not mere men? So what I'd like to do is, is uh, walk through these verses and, and answer the question, really, who are the mature that he's talking about? Because I think Paul lays it out for us in, in these verses. The first thing we can say based on verse 14 is that the mature excludes the natural person because he or they reject the wisdom of God. Right, so verse 14 was said, but the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So we can say by that, since the, the text of scripture says this natural man doesn't accept the things of the spiritual of God. So when Paul says we speak wisdom among the mature, he's not counting the natural person as a part of the mature because they reject it, right? So the natural man rejects the things of God. So, so who, who are these people or who is this person? It's, a, it's simply the person without the spirit of God. Uh, Paul uses a word uh, for humanity that is essentially uh, humans in their natural condition. It's, it's uh, in contrast, clearly in verse 15, to those who have the Spirit, we'll see, but it's, it's fallen humanity in our natural condition. We do not accept the things of God. We're without the Spirit who, who gives life to the understanding. It's a kind of life that's lived on the plane which is natural to fallen humanity. We do not know God, right? Because we have been alienated. Ephesians chapter four, verses 17 and 18, we are alienated or separated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in us, the futility of our mind, because our understanding has been darkened, right? So outside of Christ, we do not have a relationship to the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that there's a veil over our understanding so that we cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And, and that in fact, the devil himself is involved in keeping that veil securely in place. The God small g of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Right? So there's a, an element of the lost condition which captures the thinking of lost people so that they are operating on a plane which excludes the life of God and the truth of God. If I were to say it in Old Testament terms, it would be that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So apart from the fear of the Lord, a proper relationship to God, you cannot know anything properly, right? There's, there's that 
block to the ability to perceive and understand the truth of God. And that's what he means by a natural man. But look at why this text tells us he rejects God's wisdom. But a natural man, it says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So let's start right there because uh, the word that's used there is to receive or to welcome, right? So the, 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 the person who is apart from Christ in his or her fallen condition when confronted with the things of the Spirit of God will not receive them, will not accept them. All right, so it's, it's, uh, it's a statement really about the disposition of the heart because notice why he won't accept them in verse 14. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He has drawn a conclusion about the things of the Spirit of God and that conclusion is that he considers them to be foolish. All right, and, and I'm, I'm trying to walk carefully through this because a lot of times people misunderstand the point here. This is not about mental incompetence, right? This is not saying that a lost person can't uh, know the things of God because they're too dumb to know them or that they're intellectually short of the ability to under, it's, it's too high and too, too intellectual, too complicated, and they can't, they can't reach that high. No, it's actually about the disposition of the inner person that when they hear the things of the Spirit of God, they won't receive them because their judgment of them is that it is foolish, right? They reject it because they don't agree with it. Right? They won't receive it because they think it's foolish. They, they pass a judgment on it which condemns it in that regard. It's not a lack of mental skill, but a contrary moral commitment. You know, we, I, think, um, I think we at least can see by way of analogy illustrations of this in our day. I mean, how, how can you have people sort of see the same event and come to such radically different interpretations of that event? Right? I mean, think, think about what happened October 7th uh, with the attack on Israel. And people stand and look at it and draw radically diverse interpretations of it. Not because there's actually two sets of facts. It's because there's two dispositions toward it. Right? And that's, that's an analogy to what Paul's saying. God has revealed his truth. And it's not that one side actually can see the facts and the other side can't see the facts. It's that one side's heart disposition has been receptive to it, and the others rejects it. The other says, that's foolish. I do not accept that. That's what verse 14 is saying. They consider it to be foolish. 
And that's why in verse 14, they cannot understand it, right? They cannot, he cannot understand them, the things of the Spirit of God, because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. There is something about the assessment, the appraisal, the discerning of the information that requires a spiritual discernment to have a true acceptance and appreciation of it. The heart is in rebellion against those things, therefore they cannot know them, they cannot understand them in this way. Listen, to this is a, a little bit of a crusty quote because it comes from a long time ago and you know they didn't tend to write for the easiest of understanding. Uh, so, so, but stick with me because it's really important. Quote, as the things which the Holy Spirit has revealed address themselves not only to the intellect as true, but to the conscience as obligatory and to the affections as excellent and lovely, not to receive them is not to recognize in our inward experience their truth, authority, and excellence. Right, And we tend to use the idea of know and understand as just issues of truth because we're trying to limit the fullness of the understanding of it. But I think a biblical, proper, even human recognition of it is, is that there's more than just the intellect involved in it. There's the conscience, you heard. So the conscience is either seeing this as something that has a claim on me or rejecting that claim. There's moral value in the truth, but also that the truth, true truth, if I could put it that way, is excellent. It's beautiful. And if you can't see that, right, that's why you reject it. And without the help of the Spirit of God to enlighten the eyes of understanding, lost people in their Natural condition, Jesus says in John chapter three, love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You see, if I fully comprehend what the truth of the cross of Christ is, then it's not just a set of facts. It's also a conclusion about my guilt. It's a conclusion about the ugliness of my sin and the righteous condemnation of God. But if I don't see myself that way, I'm not worthy of condemnation. I've not done things evil and wicked. Then the cross is out there and I go, that's foolish. That is, that is I mean, I hear what you're saying, Paul, but, but that is just not true about me. That's, that's just not the way it works, Paul. You're talking foolishness, right? That's what's going on in the natural heart. It rejects the truth of God because of its prior commitments to its own authority, to its prior commitments to its own rightness because of prior commitments to its own sense of what is good and beautiful and true. It is not 
that somehow they are incompetent and the gospel is speaking uh, Bembe and they're hearing English. Right? That's not what's going on. The gospel is being communicated with clarity to the heart of the unbeliever, but the unbelieving heart wants to have nothing to do with it. They reject the wisdom of God in favor of the wisdom of man. And that's what he's after. In some ways, and again, analogies, you know, are, you're supposed to focus on the analogy at the particular point it's being made. But uh, years ago, when I was uh, studying, uh, working on my doctorate, I was uh, talking with a professor in between breaks, and he told me about something that happened the weekend before, that another professor at the school had a parent who passed away uh, previously, and so they were doing a garage sale to you know, sort of clear out things. And one of the things on, on the table was a box of baseball cards. And if I recall correctly, they had like, you know, five bucks for the whole box. Well, the professor I'm talking to, son, was actually a baseball card collector, and they happened to go by, and he picks up the box and starts looking in there. And because, remember, this is like a professor whose parent had died. This collection of baseball cards was from like the early part of the 20th century. And this guy starts looking in, and he goes, you need to get this box off the table. And when they went and got him appraised, the box was full of baseball cards worth like $25,000 that somebody could have bought for five bucks. Don't you wish you had come back first, right? The buyer says, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing. And then he boasts. That's what Proverbs talks about. But here's the thing. That people were looking at the box, but their lack of perception put a very different value on it. Right, Someone who has no appreciation for what this is, no heart for the value of it, just what do I want to buy a bunch of old baseball cards for? Why would somebody pay five bucks for that? But someone who had the insight and perception and discernment to know what that really was, radically different response. Okay, so here's, here's the, the point of analogy. The lost person, the natural man of verse 14, steps into the exact same set of information. There's nothing different about the message. There's nothing different about what's being said about the cross and about Christ. But this person lacks, they lack the heart to recognize it as wisdom, they count it as foolishness, and they can't understand the value of the cross because that is spiritually discerned. That's what verse 14 is saying. So when Paul speaks wisdom, it's among not among those who have no spiritual discernment to perceive it, whose heart rejects the wisdom of God. So look at verse 15, because here's the second category that he's talking about, and that is, This among the mature of verse six includes the spiritual because they receive it, verses 15 and 16. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one, for is known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. So who are those, who who are the spiritual in verse 15? 
Well, the basic idea of the word is that they're of the Spirit, they have the Spirit. I believe what Paul is doing here is building on what we know from Jesus' teaching in John chapter 3, for instance, that you must be born of the Spirit. John 3, 6 says, for that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Right, so when you've been born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God comes to indwell the believer in such a way that they can be described as of the Spirit. They're spiritual in that sense. They not, don't read spiritual like as an immaterial because he's talking to people who are still human, but they're humans in whom the work of God has happened to reverse what we said about the natural man, alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. He says that in 4, 17 and 18, but verse 20 of chapter four, he says, but you have not so learned Christ if you have heard and been taught by him. All right, so it's the person who actually has come to know God through Jesus Christ that has eternal life. I mean, Jesus himself said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So, so life comes into the heart through knowing God and that's all, all the work of the spirit giving birth. You're born of the spirit. And so you see and understand the truth of God because if I use the language of 2 Corinthians 3, 18, he has unveiled the face, right? The natural man sees the truth of God through a veil because the God of this world has veiled the minds of them which believe not. But when the gospel penetrates the heart, it lifts the veil and Christ is seen. And that's because of the ministry of the spirit. A person has been born of the spirit. They have been made Christ. The Spirit has opened the eyes of their understanding, has removed the veil, has changed the disposition of the heart. And therefore, they receive, discern all things. They actually are able to see it for what it's worth. Again, uh, I don't want to overpress the analogy, but that box of baseball cards is there and when the other professor's son, who was a collector, walked up, he discerned what it was. He actually saw it for its true value, contrary to the person who had no heart for or understanding of those things. All right? Now, that's on a purely human plane. When we're talking about the cross of Jesus Christ, the thing that enables someone to actually discern the things of the Spirit of God is because the Spirit of God has opened the eyes of understanding, that they actually have a relationship to God by virtue of the Spirit's ministry, which allows that kind of perception. It is, uh, to use the language of the Old Testament again, that the source of the fear of the Lord is the work of God in the heart. Right? That's the thing that distinguishes the spiritual person from the natural person. It's not a natural distinction. It's actually a spiritual distinction. This person has had his eyes opened to understand the value of the message of the cross and therefore not just agree with it intellectually, 
but have a recognition of the obligations of the claim of that truth upon his conscience and also have it stir his affection so that he sees in it the beauty and excellence of it. Go back to chapter chapter 1, verse 24, just to see, right? See again this distinction. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see that in that, that statement of verse 24, the facts of the cross of Christ, right? They're the exact same facts, whichever angle you look at it from. So it, it doesn't actually change the reality of it, but the perception and understanding of that reality. Here, it's the crucified Messiah is offensive and moronic, but over here, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the difference between them is the work of God to open the eyes of understanding. Right? Just like Lydia heard the preaching of Paul and God opened her heart to receive the things that Paul was preaching. That God, uh, God works in the heart. Remember when, when Peter and Jesus asked his disciples, who, who, do, who do people say that I am? And they go, some say you're Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' answer isn't, good one, Peter. You're smarter than the rest of those bozos. Now he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right? It was the gracious work of the Father to open Peter's understanding so that he could see who Jesus really was with all of the ramifications of that. Right? He saw the glory of God in the face of Christ, to use the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice in verse 15, because the, the second part of verse 15 is a little, little complicated in this sense as to what does he mean by, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And, and what I'd say, we have, to, uh, we have to start by excluding this, that it doesn't mean that they're exempt from all accountability and judgment. Because look over to chapter five, verses 11 and 12, or 12 and 13. This is about someone who's in the church and claims to be doing something as a spiritual act, but it's actually sin. And so verse 12 says, for what do I, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So, so when, when, when we see him say he's not discerned or judged or appraised by anyone, Paul clearly doesn't mean that anyone who has the spirit in him is free from all accountability. Back in chapter 14, even someone who claims to speak by the spirit, it, that what he says sits under judgment. 1429, let them pass judgment on it as to whether or not it's true or not. So I think the best way for us to understand it is Paul beginning to address the problem at Corinth. Because remember, I read all the way down to three, 
Some say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. By chapter four, he's gonna go, it's a little thing that I am judged by you or by any human court for God is the one who examines me and he's using the word that's related to this word. So what he's trying to do is go, it's really not the assessment of of other people that is the, the, the normative or determinative thing. It ultimately is one's relationship to the truth of God. The spiritual person is able to appraise all things and that things is the things of the spirit of God from verse 14. And he himself does not, is not actually subjected to the standard of human appraisal, right? It's a little thing to be judged in that way. And that's why, I mean, in some ways, uh, this is a text, you know, Baptists uh, talk about individual soul liberty. Um, that's sort of the old way of saying it, but it's private responsibility, personal responsibility to see and embrace the truth. That's a part of what this text is talking about. The real work of God is a personally received one, right? I have a responsibility to respond to the message of God by the Spirit's work, and I must see the truthfulness of it and embrace it. It is that kind of responsibility that's here. And and he's rooting it then in, look at verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, quoting from Isaiah, we have the mind of Christ. He's He's saying, listen, we've been given the truth of God revealed from the Lord. The Spirit has explained it to us. He has taught it to us. And so we must recognize the truth in that regard. God's truth as revealed to us. Now, I read through in chapter three, because I like to remind us occasionally, and sometimes people don't like to be reminded of this, um, but the, Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, there was no chapter two, chapter three. There was no two sixteen three one, right? It was a letter. Um, it, it, we put those in centuries after Paul wrote this letter to help us navigate. So like if I wanted to say this morning, turn to, turn to the place where it says, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, right? You'd open up the letter and go, okay, I got to start searching through here. Right, but they put them in there, so we've got little addresses. You know, turn to three one. That's the address of it. But but as he's writing his argument, he now starts to talk about the contrast that's happening at Corinth between some who are accepting this message and some who are who are actually sort of fighting against it. And that leads us really to another group of people. Verse 14 is the natural man, verse 15 is spiritual, but then he talks about in verses one through four of chapter three that there were men of flesh, right? He calls them fleshly or like mere men. You are fleshly. And so what we need to do is when we think about speaking the wisdom among the mature, we can say it excludes the natural because they reject it. It includes the spiritual because they receive it. But if I could put it this way, it challenges the carnal or fleshly because they're rebelling against it. The, the people he's addressing or talking to in the first part of chapter three are people that have the spirit, 
but they're living as if they don't because of their sinful attitudes and actions, right? And, and, and uh, they are Christians, because notice he says in verse one, as to infants in Christ, and that he couldn't talk to them as people, though, who were really functioning as spiritual people because of the, I said, the sinful attitudes and actions. Look at verse three. For since there is jealousy and strife among you. So jealousy is a sin of the heart and disposition and strife is that they're causing divisions. So their sinful attitudes and actions were causing them to struggle with the wisdom of God. They weren't growing up spiritually because they weren't actually, if I use the language of Galatians 5, they weren't walking in the Spirit. They weren't being led by the Spirit. They weren't keeping in step with the Spirit. So it was having an adverse effect on their spiritual digestion. And I use that language because he said, I had to give you milk and not meat, right? I had to, I had to give you soft stuff that you could digest because you couldn't handle anything stronger than that because you were acting like mere humans. You were behaving in a fleshly, carnal kind of way by your jealousy and strife. The, the issue that was in front of them, right, is that they, they actually uh, had, if I could put it this way, a kind of self-centeredness that was, was distorting and damaging their spiritual discernment. And I call it self-centeredness because it was contrary to the cross, which says, look at chapter one, verse 29, so that no one may boast before God. And look at verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because they were boasting in men, right? Their, their argument, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Peter or even the ones who are saying, I'm of Paul. They were actually turning away from the cross that causes no one to boast except for in the Lord. By them picking up their banner and saying, my side is the right one. They were full of jealousy of the others and causing strife and division over it. And because of that, they were acting like lost people. They were acting like people who were not a part of the wisdom of God. And so they were choking on it. Because if they really accepted Christ and him crucified, they had nothing to boast in. They had no superior insight that could cause them to be the enlightened ones and everybody else has sort of missed it, right? Because because that's, I mean, that that is just a constant threat to the health of God's people. I mean, the, I mean I'm not that old. Some of you go, oh yeah, you are, but I'm really not in the big picture, right? So I've been serving in ministry for 40 years and in those 40 years, I've probably seen a half dozen kinds of things that have come down the pike that are some superior insight that if you'll just get this, then you'll really be mature. You'll really be spiritual. 
We found the thing that other people have missed. And all of a sudden it becomes, I'm of, I'm of this person. And there's sort of an arrogant approach that when you start to have the conversation with them, they just sort of look down your nose like, well, I mean, if you were spiritual, you'd understand what I'm saying. I mean, if, you know, if you really understood the Bible, you'd get what I'm talking about. I had, I mean, it wasn't, it was sort of that. A couple weeks ago, I was preaching at a conference and and they had a panel discussion about missions and topic came up about Christian nationalism. And I'm going to use a phrase, I'm not going to explain it, but uh, theonomy, Christian reconstructionism. And so I, we had talked beforehand, I was going to, guy that was going to get handed that grenade and I was supposed to fall on it. So I did my job and I fell on it. Boom, 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 boom. What's wrong with this? Well, we finished the session and I'm standing there talking to a group of people and all of a sudden, and the other guy on the panel was right here. All of a sudden I hear this guy walk up. He goes, I'm a theonomist and I don't like what that guy said. Well, he's like right here. And I'm like, I look over. And then my friend, and I'll put it in air quotes, said, well, you know, he's been studying this for the longer than I'm alive. You should talk to him. <laughs> and he walks off. I texted him 30 minutes later, you owe me. Because <laughs> this guy's first words, I've been studying this for 10 years and da da da, da. And I'm like, I'm fighting back going, dude, I've been studying since you were 10 years old. Right? But his first words out of his mouth essentially were intended to cause me to go, oh, I'm sorry. I don't have the level of spiritual insight that you have into this. Right? Because he had ascended to some insight that the rest of us were all missing. And, and if we really love Jesus and we really wanted to do things the right way, we would be, I'm of this team, right? That, I mean, you could just, I could just walk you through tons of them because that kind of arrogance is actually fleshliness. It's the fruit of jealousy and strife and it blocks your ability to understand the glory of the cross the wisdom of the things of God because you're putting yourself in judgment on rather than being responsive to and receptive of the things of God as revealed in the scriptures. So Paul is concerned about the, uh, the Corinthians and Lord willing, we'll pick that up again probably after the turn of the year uh, when we get through the the Christmas season, but he's concerned about them and he's going to hit it hard in chapters three and four. But let me just drive home what I think are some important uh, observations and applications of what he did say to us here in 14 through 16. The first is this, and, and if, if you probably have picked this up as I'm going, so I'm just going to try and reinforce it, right? Depravity affects every part of humans, right? So sometimes people come along and they want to think depravity has only, uh, it's only affected humanity up to the brain. And the human mind is actually somehow above 
sin in that regard, and so intellectually is unaffected by sin. Clearly, this text doesn't leave that ground, right? And and no one really should ever come to that conclusion even apart from this, because if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then, then you can't really actually think God's thoughts apart from a reverent submission to him. There are two ways to look at the world, this text is saying. Because really, even, even though I've looked at it as natural, spiritual, and carnal, this is actually one group over here, right? They are people of the Spirit, but they're acting fleshly. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are without the Spirit and those who have the Spirit. Among those who have the Spirit, you can either be responsive to the truth of God or elevating your prideful self above the truth. That's acting as if you're a mere human, right? It's not to be thought of as like a stage process. Well, you're natural, then you're carnal, and then you become spiritual. That's not what Paul's teaching at all. He's saying there's people who don't have the Spirit and people who do have the Spirit, and I should have been able to talk to you as people who are fully growing in the Spirit, but in fact, you are choosing to be fleshly like infants, Right, so among those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, there still can be the, the surrender to our fleshliness that blocks our spiritual progress. And it doesn't matter how long you've been saved, for the record. Right, you could be sitting here having been a Christian for 40 years. That doesn't mean you're spiritually mature because spiritual maturity isn't the passing of the calendar. It's the disposition of your heart surrendered to God. You just might be an old infant spiritually because strife and jealousy are keeping you from growing in Christ. Don't think just because you've been a Christian for a long time that you're necessarily a mature Christian because mature isn't an age status. It's a spiritual condition of growth, right? And and so Paul's concerned about them in that way. He wants them to see that wisdom is found in Christ and you cannot assume neutrality for purposes of argument. And that's what seems to be a part of the problem. They're saying, hey, the Greeks and the Jews are offended and and it's an obstacle for them when they hear this cross of the Christ. Listen, we need to, we need to sort of assume a kind of neutrality. If we just sort of remove that argument, we can have a conversation with them and they're gonna see the value of what we're saying. It's not just intellectual. It's actually the disposition of the heart and it is never neutral. Do you you realize that, right? When the scriptures talk about the hostility in the human heart to God, it's never actually a neutral place, right? Even the person who seems religiously Christian. I mean, I had this conversation in in the airport, uh, I guess it was Friday night. It's like a 17, 18 hours on the plane, so my time zones are a little bit messed up right now. But I, I'm talking with a Muslim man in the Johannesburg airport, and he did the classic, 
you know, you know, we, we love Jesus. I mean, we think he's a prophet and he's going to help fight against Antichrist. And we just don't, we just, we don't accept the son of God thing. It's like, like the most important thing, right? And, and, but here's the point is like someone might go, well, hey, let's just have like an intellectual discussion about it and he'll see the intellectual value of it. No, he actually understands the claim we make and he rejects it. Right, he he rejects it, and and in fact, if I'd had time, and I'm hoping at some point we'll have opportunity to follow up because he's coming to the states, and we may get a chance to do that. And and here's the thing: is it's like that consistent kind of a deal. Well, you know, like we're all going toward the same God. We all have, you know, we all sort of agree on a bunch of this stuff, but it's actually at the moment where you unpack what the scriptures truly say that all of a sudden the rejection becomes prominent, right? Even, I mean, even take, and I'm just gonna put in air quotes, Chris, Christians, right? The person who says they love Jesus, and then when you unpack what Jesus said, like in this particular case, if, if I said to him, you know, here's what Jesus himself said, if you do not honor me like you honor the Father, you do not honor the Father. Right, that's what Jesus said. Do you still like him? Okay. Or here's the Jesus in the Bible. He said actually that, that your deeds are evil and you love darkness. Do you still like Jesus? Right? Once you actually start to tear down the mythical Jesus, the sort of religious facade Jesus, and actually get to the Jesus that's revealed in scriptures, even people who can say they love Jesus at some point, well, I don't want a Jesus like that. I mean, I, I don't want a God like that. What they're really saying is they love the God they've made. They're saying what Romans 1 says, when they knew God as God, they neither glorified him as God nor were thankful, but turned from worshiping the creature, creator and forming a God of their own at that point. I'm gonna make God in the image I want to and then I'll worship him, right? We cannot, we cannot water down the divide as if there's some kind of neutrality out there and start to go, well, hey, they're really not that far from God. Yeah, they're as far as life is from death. And so were you. So don't hear any kind of arrogance in it. It's just, you didn't come to Christ because you were smarter than everybody else. You didn't come to Christ because you weren't that far from God. You, you and I are dead in trespasses and sins until God gives us life. And, and if we don't recognize that, then we haven't truly repented and we haven't truly believed. Because if I can be saved by my righteousness, then Christ didn't need to die. That's what Galatians 2 says. If it's just a matter of me saying enough prayers, of giving enough money, of doing enough rituals, that's the only difference, then Christ died in vain. 
right? Until I understand the depth of my depravity and the uh, the impending and eternal nature of my condemnation, I can't understand the cross. I can't understand the gospel. And I should never distort that or bring that down. The basis for my understanding has to be the revealed word of God because that's what Paul's been saying. We speak wisdom, yet not the wisdom of this world. It's a wisdom that was hidden in a mystery and has been revealed to us by the Spirit of God and is now taught in words that have been received from the Spirit of God. So if we really want to assess wisdom, we have to assess it on God's terms, which are according to his word. And everything else has to be brought into submission to that and subjection to that. Because maturity is not merely intellectual. It actually involves the entire disposition of the believer and is the proper response to the truth. It's not just knowledge, because knowledge can puff up, chapter 8, verse 1. It's knowledge that's translated into love. We love the Lord because we understand his glory in the cross. Let's pray together. Father, please help us to recognize the the utter importance of your word and the work of the Spirit to understand the glory of the cross. Help us to see it not just as a historical fact. It's certainly nothing less than that. Jesus died in a time and place that are real and historical but that there is a depth of meaning to that death, which is is so important for us to perceive and understand that he died for sins, according to the scriptures, that he rose again. And that means that we're sinners and that we need the benefits of Christ's death applied to us. And that the only way they can is if we will repent and believe in him. Acknowledge who he is as your chosen precious cornerstone and accept him as our Lord and Savior. May your spirit drive that truth deep into hearts today. May we glory in Christ and in Christ alone. Lord, help us not to give away the power of the gospel because we want to try and be attractive or appealing to people who reject it. Help us to never think that we're smarter than what your word says, that the very thing which is offensive to some is your glory to others, that that it is your power and wisdom. May we have the mind of Christ in us, in every way, so that we live our lives in the light of your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.